Debbie Walsh has been studying the role of women in American politics for over 20 years at Rutgers University. I spoke to her to better understand the long history that led up to November's breakthrough election. So what was it like for her to watch a record number of congresswomen being sworn in this year? So I had a mixed reaction. One was very positive, which was obviously seeing the largest freshman class of women in Congress in history to see 36 new women elected in one cycle, unprecedented, and at the same time Hmm. being cautious, which is a little bit of what we do here, which is to put a little bit of a reality check on all of the progress. So while we did see this tremendous growth, we are constantly being reminded and reminding others of the fact that women are still less than a quarter of all of the members of Congress. And so while there is much celebration about all of the new women, we're still at less than 25%. Mm. And also that this story really was pretty much exclusively on the Democratic side. Of all of those newly elected women that we saw, only one new Republican woman was elected this time. And we are now down to 13 Republican women in Congress. We haven't seen numbers that low since Bill Clinton was in the White House. So we're not going to get to gender parity if only one party is electing women. So it makes me celebrate on one front and mindful of the continuing work that needs to be done on the other. So let's look back a little bit in time here. Who were the first women to enter Congress and how was it that they ended up getting there? Well, Jeanette Rankin was the first woman, a Republican woman, who came into Congress and she actually got there before there was national suffrage. Many of the Western states granted women the right to vote earlier than the national right to vote was granted. And she served for one term, then was out, and then came back again. And she has the distinction of having been the lone vote in Congress to vote against the U.S. entering each of the world wars. So she voted against, she was a pacifist, and she voted against the U.S. going into World War I and against going into World War II. Um, But in general, you know, early on, we saw some women who got elected to office, but an awful lot of them in the early days were women who came in to fill a vacancy. Oftentimes, it was their husband who was in office who died, and then the party would need to put somebody in there to kind of be a placeholder, and then they would serve out that term. It was an easy way of doing it. It made sense. This woman probably knew much of what her husband was working on in Congress. It wasn't a jarring thing for the public. It was the, you know, this is the best person to carry on the former member's legacy until an election could be held. But some of those women actually then went on to have long and illustrious careers in Congress themselves. So one of the most famous of those is Margaret Chase Smith, who filled her her husband's seat in the House and then went on to run herself multiple times for re-election and then was elected to the U.S. Senate from the state of Maine. She was the person who made the famous speech on the floor of the Senate condemning Senator Joe McCarthy. And she put her hat in the ring for the presidency as a presidential candidate on the Republican side. You also have women like Lindy Boggs, Cardis Collins, Lois Capps, women who came in a little more recently, but who then went on to to have their own strong and important careers in Congress. 
But really, starting in the 70s, we started to see more and more women running on their own and getting elected. We saw the first women of color coming in, Patsy Mink, Shirley Chisholm. Ileana ross Lettinen, who just retired, was the first Latina to be elected to Congress. So it has been a slow and evolutionary process, but it has shifted from women being a complete novelty, women largely being there as placeholders for their husbands, to women getting elected in their own right, to now the point where they are well over a third of the Democratic caucus on the House side. So it has been a a process of evolutionary change. What would you say were some of the foremost sort of ground-level working challenges that those early women in Congress would have faced? Well, I mean, I think it's everything from being completely marginalized from leadership and on the floor to literally things as mundane as not having a bathroom that you could use. I mean, it was a very male institution. And to be the first women in those spaces would have been really a challenge, really difficult, not being taken seriously. You know, women were not chairs of committees. I think the first woman to chair a committee was done almost as an insulting joke, but there was a house beauty shop and that, you know, that was what the women got to chair. So these women were not taken as seriously as their male colleagues by any stretch of the imagination. So I can't even imagine what it must have been like to walk into a place like the U.S. Congress and to be one of four or five or three women in the whole entire institution. Right. I mean, just the strength of character that that would have taken is is remarkable to think about. Absolutely. And and honestly, when you think about it, what would it take for you to think that at a period where women had only fought for and earned the right to vote maybe five years ago and to have the strength and the sort of sense of self to say, I should actually be in Congress. It's quite extraordinary to think about. Exactly. Obviously, there are other kinds of diversity that bring other perspectives. But what's your sense of how introducing those voices really is going to change the broader conversation? We have found that women are more likely than their male counterparts to have their policy agenda priorities reflect the interests of women, families, and children. It doesn't mean that all the women on both sides of the aisle, again, are agreeing on the right on the same approach, but that that those issues matter and come to the forefront for those elected officials, and that's different. And we've also found that women are more likely to believe that government should be operating more transparently in the open, and that women are more likely than their male counterparts to believe that they have a responsibility to represent voices of folks that normally aren't at the table. So not just women, but also people of color, low-income people, people who don't necessarily have the same kind of voice and the same kind of access. So they tend to be more inclusive. And we also have seen that women seem to be more able to, and the women say this about themselves, a little more able to work across the aisle, which I think these days is significant and important because we see such gridlock and such partisan rancor that to have more people who can figure out ways to reach across the aisle could really make a difference. Oh, absolutely, right? I mean, it's about personal engagement. It's about being able to converse. It's about good faith. It's about knowing 
a little bit about each other, the human stories, what's going on with your kids, what's happening with your older parents. I mean, all those kinds of things that make them human to each other so that you can't demonize each other, you don't write each other off, you have those personal relationships makes a big difference. The women in the Senate for years now have been coming together across party lines to have dinner together. Hmm. This started with Barbara Mikulski, who was the first Democratic woman elected to the United States Senate in her own right. And she would organize these dinners and they have continued today, even though she's no longer serving. And again, these are women who really span the ideological spectrum. But The fact that they have built some kind of personal relationship is hugely Mm -hmm. important in politics. It allows you to have some conversations and to find some middle ground. Kind of a fun example of this is that the men and the women in Congress do have these baseball teams, softball teams, and the men play each other, the Democrats versus the Republicans, as a fundraiser. And the women in the House... The way they operate is the women play together, Democrats and Republicans on the same team, and they play the women in the press corps. Wow. Uh, So it... They have they even in that in that small way have figured out some ways to work together. And again, Mm -hmm. it seems sort of why is that such a big deal? But those personal relationships really matter in politics. Are there ways that you think social media shaped what women could or couldn't do in this campaign? I mean, it's just generally fascinating to me to think about the the ways in which social media changed the way that politicians engage with the public. I think that one of the things that we saw in 2018 is the kind of authenticity that these women showed. They They talked about their strengths, but they also were willing to talk about some of their vulnerabilities and, in fact, I think turned their vulnerabilities into strengths. We saw candidates this time around talking about their own personal Me Too stories. We saw women talking about the fact that they had grown up in families and homes where there was an abuser. They grew up in homes where they had a parent who was a substance abuser, addicted to drugs. We saw folks talking about their military experience. We saw them talking about the fact that they were gay. They talked about all the aspects of their lives and turned it into strength. I do think social media is a piece of that, that we are all used to now people being much more transparent about their lives. And I think there is some of that expectation now that we all have that you will be your real self. And I think with that authenticity, women can be much more real and much more relatable. I mean, it was not that long ago that a woman who had young children would be encouraged by her political consultant to not really talk about your young kids Mm. or to show them in a brochure or on your website because, in fact, people would ask you, well, who's going to take care of your kids if you get elected? Not a question that young male candidates would be confronted with. Right. In the research that you've done and the data that you've collected, what does it tell you about the ways in which women politic differently from men? Well, one of the things that we have asked women and men who serve in state legislatures over the years in surveys is, when you first ran for office, did somebody suggest this to you or did you run on your own? And 
you know, you'll be shocked, but the men basically wake up one morning, look in the mirror and say, <laughs> I'd be a great state legislator, and they just run, whereas women need to be recruited. And there is that sense of entitlement that, frankly, we should all feel, right? We are all entitled to be elected officials, but women have not been kind of raised that way. I think that's changing. I think that's one of the changes we saw in 2018. A lot of the women who ran did not run because somebody asked them. They ran, frankly, in spite of their party. There are a number of examples of women who are now in Congress who they were not their party's choice. In fact, a couple of them, Ayanna Presley and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who defeated incumbent members of their own party for those seats. So they were not waiting to be asked. They were not waiting their turn. They stepped up and they ran. Debbie Walsh is the director of the Center for American Women and Politics at Rutgers University. 